Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week, I sit down with podcaster Aaron Barker. If you don't know Aaron, you should. And our conversation is next. First, let's talk about our late friend, Doc Thompson. I miss him so much. Um, he had, as you may very well know, five rules for life. Number one, don't be a jerk. <laughs> Number two, keep the talent happy. Number three, always come clean. Number four, it's not offensive if it's true. And number five, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Those are words to live by. And we, of course, always think about you, Doc Thompson, wherever you are. And there is a flavor of coffee named after Doc from the American Pride Roasters collection. It's the Doc Thompson Bacon Blast. There's the uh, original um, salty and smoky flavor. And then there's also the chocolate Bacon Blast flavor. Uh, when you head over to APR Coffee. Dot com. Uh, APRCoffee.com. Don't forget to use promo code ATM at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. The Doc Thompson Bacon Blast is currently featured over there, but there's so much more. Check it out. APRCoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Aaron Barker is someone I recently got to know and if you aren't familiar, this is your chance to get to know him as well. So much to talk about. A podcaster who's taken a winding path to get where he is today. And it was a pleasure getting to know him and his story as well. Uh, and also some great advice that he's going to share uh, for everyone that anyone can apply to their own life. Uh, let's go ahead and get this conversation started. It's Aaron Barker here on At The Mic. Aaron, you are a host at uh, Mojo Five O Radio. And first of all, tell... Tell us where we can find your show, because you do a great job with it, man. Where can people find you? Oh, well, thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, so you can go to breakdradio.com, uh, B-R-E-A-K-D-R-A-D-I-O.com, and you can get the show there. I do a Sunday show on Mojo mm -hmm. uh, that comes on at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and then I do a show on Odyssey Radio, which comes on Friday nights at 6 p.m., and that is O-D-Y-S-Y-Radio.com for them and Mojo50.com for the other one. And uh, both of those shows, however, along with the Daily Breakdown, are located there at BreakDRadio.com. Yeah, man, you do a great job with that stuff. Uh, it's uh, you're, you're just you're, um, you're a thinker, I'll say that. Uh, and you live in, what, uh, Kentucky, right? Which, by the way... It's such a beautiful state. It's one of the because uh, I got to thinking about this when I saw you know Kentucky, I thought that is such an underrated state as far as natural beauty. I and I put Arkansas and New Mexico also on that list. Um, just a beautiful state there, man. Yeah, I, I do. We we live in Kentucky. I agree with you. Um, I where I live, we're about thirty five miles south of Cincinnati. Okay. And a lot of people say over here, they're like, oh, we're in Cincinnati. And I'm like, no, no, we're not in Cincinnati. We're not a suburb <laughs> of Cincinnati. We're not part of Cincinnati. Don't associate us with that. Uh, but yeah, we're, we live about 35 miles south of Cincinnati. And we're, we're lo lucky to be in a rural area. So we're close enough where we can run into town. And I, that, that's, they, you know, we're rednecks because we can say we run into town. <laughs> we can run into town and have fun and then still be far enough removed from all the other crazy stuff that happens in the city. But yeah, Kentucky really is, man. It really is gorgeous. I mean, going up to the northern part of Kentucky when it gets around the Ohio River right across from Cincy, it's a little more, uh, a little more uh, of a city or inner city type feel. But like down in central, western, and eastern Kentucky, it's just absolutely beautiful down there. You've got the, the iconic horse fences that run the roads, uh, alongside the roads with yeah. the tree line roads and all that. I mean, it really is some beautiful places uh, mm -hmm. over here. So very yeah. grateful to be here. Yeah, I agree. I used to uh, drive back and forth between Lincoln, Nebraska and Atlanta, Georgia, when I was in college and really enjoyed that, uh, that drive through Kentucky. So you were born, though, in Cleveland, Tennessee, just south of there. And I wonder, you know, because I had a friend who went to a college there in Cleveland. Uh, is that, was that Carson Newman or what? what's the college there in, in Cleveland? Can you think? Well, the one that I know of is Lee University. Okay. And it used to be Lee College. And the reason I was born in Cleveland, Tennessee is because my dad was going to Lee University at the time. Okay. So that, that's kind of, I, I grew up in the Church of God, which is a, a Pentecostal denomination, and their headquarters is in Cleveland, Tennessee, 
And that's where they decided to put their college as well to train all the ministers and such. Okay. So my dad was going there. And so it was kind of like the Mecca of the church of God. So we were down there. I was born in January of 81. And uh, my mom was in the hospital watching Reagan's inauguration uh, while she was, uh, you know, well, uh, a few days after I'd been born. But um, yeah, well, we shortly moved back to Kentucky. I think it was like May of that year. So we've been in Kentucky ever since with a short stint. I don't like to put on my resume or tell anybody about, but we spent about a year and a half in Ohio, but don't tell anybody. Don't that. tell Okay. So. It'll be our little secret here. No, I saw Cleveland, Tennessee, and, and I, I think it might've been a music school or something that uh, a friend of mine went to. And so on the weekends, uh, myself and a couple other friends, we would drive up from Atlanta and uh, on occasion, and we would see him. And I remember Cleveland, Tennessee has a ton of caves that we would go and explore there in the area. How long did you stay there? Well, I see it's weird because I, I was there. I was, you know, probably just a few months old when we when we were there. We went back and visited uh, many years later. I think I was like a freshman in high school. Okay. Uh, we went back and visited to see where I was born. Mm-hmm. And the hospital where, where I was born, they had a big shrine set up to me. Nice. Uh, people went, they lit candles and they sure. said prayers and things like sure. that. So it was it was actually quite touching to see yeah. that. Yeah, that, uh, yeah it, it's a really neat little town, honestly. It's a neat little college town. Yeah, that's another beautiful part of the country. That whole Tennessee Valley, Ohio River Valley, uh, those two states, Kentucky and Tennessee, have a lot to offer, and I just love it through there. Um, okay, so you grew up there. Yeah, you, you know, you have um, you have an older brother. Uh, were you guys right. close growing up? Uh, did he kick your butt? Did you kick his butt? How'd that work out? No, we hated each other growing up pretty much. <laughs> we, you know, we fought like brothers fight. And uh, I was, I tried to be the tag along in high school. And my brother started making friends because I really didn't have any friends. I, I actually didn't have a, my first sleepover at a friend's house until I was in the eighth grade. And uh, I don't know if that's normal or not, but to me at that time, everybody else was doing that stuff, but I was never really in the in crowd. Um, but yeah, my brother and I, we, we, didn't really get along too much. Uh, he went on a little bit of a rant in his, uh, in his high school years and um, kind of went astray for a little bit, but ended up, um, you know, straightening his life out a little bit later, which was pretty awesome. I mean, he wasn't like a, you know, drug dealer, or male prostitute or anything <laughs> like that. that came much later, but he was, uh, when we got older, like right now we're really close, you know, like brothers end up being, it's weird because it seems like siblings, when they're younger are always, especially because there's like two and a half years difference between us. Okay. Uh, so it, he was a little more mature, obviously than I was, you know, he had to get a job sooner than I did and all that. <laughs> but uh, I think as, as young kids, siblings, we did at least tend to fight more. And then it's not until your latter years where you understand the value of having a brother or a sister. And then all of a sudden you're more <laughs> close. I don't know that that's just, that could be just my unique experience. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, my wife's family was kind of the same way they, they were, they were semi close growing up, but there was a lot of difference in years between my wife and her older sister. And, uh, she had a middle sister. So <clears throat> they were moved out, uh, well before my, my wife was able to even really hang out with them. So she kind of had her own life as well, but now, I mean, they're super tight, even though they live far away, they're, they're right. still super tight. Now, your earliest memory, though, I think we can all relate to Hot Wheel cars, especially if we're a, a boy growing up in the United States of America in the 80s. Tell me, do you remember what kind of Hot Wheel car it was? Yeah, my dad, it was so weird because I, I, as far as I can tell, I'm pretty sure that this was in uh, Erlanger, Kentucky, which is, you know, northern Kentucky, which is pretty much where I spent my whole life. I remember my dad, I asked my dad, I was a wee little tot, asked him for something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Only really, really leading up to it. I just remember a picture uh, in my head. He reaches on top of the refrigerator and he pulls <laughs> off this, uh, this red roadster convertible. It was like a 1981 or 1982 red roadster convertible. And he looks at it and he kind of inspects it, you know, and then he just <laughs> gives it to me. And then that's the last, like my dad at the time was probably in his, you know, in his twenties. And he's like, like, like he's considering, should I give him this hot wheel car? This is my favorite car. And, and then he gives it to me. So I remembered that. Uh, that's kind of burnt. I don't know why. It's just yeah. weird that, that I remembered that. You what know? did your um, first car end up being when you got older, man? Oh, my first car was a 1987 Buick Skyhawk. Okay. I just wondered if maybe this, uh, you know, was in your subconscious for the rest of your uh, childhood. <laughs> yeah. You know? Okay. I, I wish it was a roadster, but I'm kind of glad it's not because <laughs> that, that 86 Skyhawk got totaled because I fell asleep driving on 75. No. North 75. Where? Whereabouts yeah, on 75? 
so it's like if you're familiar with the area, there's a, there's a, a town called Dry Ridge and a city called Crittenden, Kentucky, and okay. they're like uh, quintessential redneck names there. But um, I was I was coming back from Lexington. I had just spent that. I think that was my third or fourth week at youth camp, and by this time I was a counselor. So I had stayed up all night the night before talking to another counselor. We were just kind of hanging out and we took off around 11 or 12 o'clock and I was coming back by myself. I was listening to Boston third stage <laughs> and at one point I decided to turn it off and I was already sleepy and it was like 76 degrees. So it was nice and warm and the windows were down and I just started nodding off. And the next thing I know I'm awake, I'm in the median of the highway and oh. I overcorrect. I fly across like the, the same God. lane of highway, but I fly across all four lanes. I slam into a guardrail. I get hit by a semi, and then I get twisted all around, and I'm facing what? southbound by the time I get done. Yeah, it was nuts, man. You could have so easily died that day. Oh, man. It was, yeah. You and the police officer, I was wearing my you got Hold on. You got hit by a semi and lived yeah. to tell the tale? Yeah, that was, and I didn't even know that that happened. It was the tail end of the, the passenger uh, side the rear passenger side was just caved in. I got pictures of this somewhere, but um, yeah, a semi hit it. I don't know if he hit it dead on. I don't. But it, it, the the witnesses there said the semi just slammed into the car, flipped me around again. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. The cop told me when I hit the guardrail, he told me that if I because I felt myself lift, you know, kind of leaning towards the left because by this time I was you know the guardrail I was facing southbound, and the guardrail hit the the, the driver's side of the car. And the police officer said that had I not been wearing my seatbelt, they would have been looking for me over the hill there. No. So I'm very, very blessed to, to not be dead. No kidding. <laughs> um, I have fallen asleep twice in my life, and those were times um, when I worked overnight, and uh, I almost fell asleep a third time uh, in the middle of Iowa. I was grateful that there was a... Uh, a thunderstorm happening or else I could have had a similar situation as yours. Was there something where you didn't sleep the night before? Yeah, I was just, I was up. There was a dude down there that uh, I struck up a friendship with and we were just hanging out and talking <laughs> because we had spent a week, um, you know, counseling these kids. So it was like the night before wow. everybody was in bed and we were just hanging out, just, Gosh. just talking about stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We actually also played a prank on the kids there that night. We, we went through and it was like midnight or something. We went through and set all the alarms to like five thirty or six, and then um, made sure that uh, that the alarms went off at the same time. And all the kids woke up thinking it was five thirty, and uh, and it was God. time to leave, but they didn't know. Yeah, we were cruel. Maybe that's that. That's kind of like it was like yeah, uh, it was karma like for karma. You. The Lord was getting me back. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what you do, because um, obviously you do a great job with the radio shows, but your I guess day job, for lack of a better term. Um, you're an administrative director for a private Christian retreat. Now, it feels like the answer to this question is going to be yes. <laughs> but um, the question is, it feels like just looking at that um, title, there's a lot of moving parts. Maybe it's like you're always herding cats. Is that kind of your experience in that role? Absolutely, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that that is both internal and external felines. So it's like... <laughs> It's all over the place. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's there, there's so many moving parts there, both, uh, you know, trying to manage a staff and then helping uh, to get to make sure that guests, because what we do is a guest will call in. They'll want to come and do a, a retreat with us. All we do is provide the lodging, the meals and some activities if okay. they want to do those things. And uh, so trying to coordinate with with the coordinator that's trying to coordinate with a larger group. And then I'm trying to coordinate with my group. So it's all it's crazy, man. I mean, there's a and then around camp season when we do our, our summer camps, add that into the mix. And it's you got about. 150, 200 kids coming through for camp, plus you're dealing with guests and staff. It's, you know, it, it's it's around that time you just want to huddle up in a corner in the fetal position and well, cry for mama. Well, where where is that camp located, man? Uh, it, it's in Union, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. it, well, we live we live really close to where the camp is. So that that's really good as far as not being on, not being late for work. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's located in Union, Kentucky, uh, close to Big Bone National Park. Okay. So. All right. Very good. So, you know, when you were a kid, what did you imagine yourself doing? Because I can't imagine that that being a director at a retreat was was high on your list. So, like, as a kid, what did you want to do, man? Man, that that's that, that I, I thought about that. That was such a great question because I think I went, I ran the gamut of the same things all little boys want to do, right? You know, I want to be mm -hmm. a, a, a police officer. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a porn star. I want to be a minister. <laughs> all of those things are kind of you know, in a young man's mind, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, like uh, so I, I just I but it wasn't around until I, I was around fifteen, and this is gonna sound so weird considering that joke there. But it wasn't around like fifteen years old or twelve or thirteen years old, I think. Uh, is when I realized that I was actually called to be a minister and I, mm. and I wanted to do that. So everything that I've kind of focused on has tried to be around communications. So the, the, the big brunt of my job is relating to people, talking to people, you know, making them feel comfortable, making them feel welcome, that kind of thing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always, you know, the, the forward facing or public facing t- aspect of the jobs that, that intrigues me, I guess. So, but uh, I, I would not have thought about this. Uh, I'm a type B personality in a okay. type A job. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So, and you you talked about how you were called into ministry. For you, was it a subtle uh, development or was it like hit you over the head with a ton of bricks or how did you um, experience that call? Yeah, that, that man, that, that's a great question. You, you have all those people that like, you know, the, the lady from the lake comes out and here thou shalt teach the gospel. <laughs> and for me, it was like, it was probably more subtle because uh, as, as a Christian, I remember when I when I became a Christian, when I got saved, uh, uh, that uh, it was around 12 years old. And I just had this immediate desire to start telling people about uh, Jesus, to start witnessing to people and start doing something to, to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, th- th- so that that kind of change in me was uh, was evident. And then uh, probably um, I would say around the age of 15 or 16. Uh, is when, you know, people started to notice that I had a gift for communication and then other people started confirming that. And then my senior exit project, which is a project we had to do in Kentucky, was uh, we had to take uh, our future career and this, we had to do this in order to graduate. But We had to take our future career and then we had to talk about what we wanted to do and then we had to create a problem and then we had to solve that problem and then we had to present it to a panel. It's a hard assignment, man. Yeah, it, it was. It was pretty cool. So, nice so mine was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, it, it, it was fun, you know. I mean, of course, what I, I ended up looking at, you know, evangelizing a neighborhood and breaking it down into grids or something like that. Hmm. But, but yeah, I guess, I guess, Keith, that's a pretty penetrating question there because I, I would say it was more of a subtle thing because I never had that kind of aha moment where it was like, oh yes, this is it. It was just always kind of a embedded in me from the moment I became a Christian. I'm like, you know, I really have to tell people about this. And it's never been pastoral. I've never been a pastor, but uh-huh. I have been a minister in some capacity for, you know, 20 something years, I guess, 22 plus years. Okay. All right. Well, you've had other jobs as you know, we all have uh, over the years. Uh, you sent the answers to your questions here. And I had to laugh when I saw painter. And the reason I laughed is because right before I opened your email, I had just done touch-up work in my living room, you know, just 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 little places here and there where some paint chips were, and I couldn't for the life of me find a paintbrush to do it, and so I just took a paper towel, and I just dipped it in the paint. I was like, eh, good enough. Here, yeah, good enough, good enough. Now, because you just sent these questions the other day, and I haven't yeah. really looked at my handiwork in the daylight. <laughs> So as we sit here recording this, I have no idea if it looks like garbage in there or not. So I'm I gotta I gotta remember to to really check that out uh, when I get home. But uh, yeah, I just don't have the patience for painting, man. Uh, Is that just something that just came natural for you, or no? I hate painting. Uh I hate painting. It was a job more than anything. It was just a job. Yeah, it it was a job. (laughs) My parents, man, that was that short stint, that year and a half that I lived in uh-huh. Ohio. Okay. So I guess we're going to have to talk about that. Oh, but uh, yeah, so, like, my parents were the managers of an apartment complex. And um, I, I had worked a couple of jobs. You know, I, I was actually, you know, working jobs. But uh, what I would do is uh, they had apartments. And whenever those apartments would empty out, my dad would either have to paint it because he was the, the, the guy there or the maintenance guy. There's really uh-huh. only two people plus my mom working there. So it was like. You know, he's like, I can do it or I can pay you to do it. And I'm like, OK, so I kind of picked that up as a second job. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where I saved up the money from painting to buy my wife's engagement ring. Oh. And um, yeah, she's happily married to another man. But no, I'm playing. She's uh, <laughs> where I bought that. I, I bought her engagement ring from that. But it was I, I, I hated it. I hated the prep work. I hated everything about it. And um, yeah, so you, you're not going to get any qualms from me, brother, when it when you talk about touching up with a paper towel, because I would have just. <laughs> I would have just been like, sorry, honey, it's yeah. not going to get done. You can understand. Okay. Now, you did sell shoes for a stint at JCPenney. 
And my Al Bundy phase. I've got to ask, man. Did you ever get down there and just just the odor from anybody that's memorable to this day? Oh, no. I, <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay, I had to Thank ask. goodness for that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> just making sure. Yeah. So the answer to this next question is more than one. When I ask who in your life has had the biggest impact on you, um, who all stands out from your life? Yeah, uh, well, I probably the, the first person that every young man's going to say is going to be his dad, right? Because my dad was... He's, he's my hero. He was my hero growing up, still is. You know, I now now that I'm older and it's beyond having to do what my dad says and having to listen to him because he's my dad, we're, we're friends now. We have conversations. But the thing that always impacted me about my dad was he always pushed asking questions. He never shut us down. There was never a conversation mm. that we could not have with my dad. And it was anything. It was politics, religion. It was about relationships, anything at all uh, that, that you wanted to bring to him. I remember... My mom worked third shift at a hospital in Cincinnati. She didn't drive herself. My dad would drive her. Mm. So I would ride with them. And then on the way back, I would ride shotgun and I would, my dad and I would just talk. So it was, you know, like a 45 minute trip or whatnot. And uh, sometimes we would talk about church. Sometimes we would talk about school. Sometimes we would talk about girls and it was just, but I felt comfortable even at a younger age to approach my, my, my dad. And it wasn't just him. My mom was the same way. You know, we could approach him about anything. So so my dad, you know, he gave me that that foundation of asking questions, always uh, seeking out the answers, never being afraid to challenge authority, never being afraid to challenge the ideas you thought you held or the ideas you thought were right. And uh, my mom being the same way. My mom, she's been a huge influence on me because my dad had to retire uh, at a younger age uh, due to an injury. Mm. And um, because of that, my mom had to step up and do a lot more. So she was, you know, she worked longer hours. She switched to a third shift job so that she could make more money. Uh, she just, she was just a hard worker and both my parents were and all and, and still are, but I just admired my mom so much because she stepped up. She didn't, she didn't throw in the towel. She was, uh, she was fully committed to her family and fully committed to her husband and just, just dug her heels in and worked. And now they're, you know, they're retired and they're enjoying their retirement. And so they're, they're, they've, they've been probably the two biggest influences on me outside of, um, you know, we can start talking about tertiary, secondary, and tertiary influences. But that's probably the two most uh, mm-hmm. impactful people in my life that's great. Uh, to this day. That's great. I'm sure someone that would be on that list is your wife, Allison. Where did you guys meet? We actually met at church. She was uh, so I, I had I had uh, left that church and uh, was going to another church at the time, and she was coming back, and she was going to that church. And my parents just kept talking. You got to come over and meet the piano player's daughter. Come over and meet the piano player's daughter. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get there when I get there. So, uh, so I ended up, I ended, uh, went to church. And um, the first thing I, I saw of her was her back, like her back portion of her. She was standing and worshiping. And this is a young man's thoughts. I was like, well, if the front is half as good as the back, I'm going to marry that chick. <laughs> and <laughs> Awesome. That's awesome. So, uh, and it worked out. But yeah, <laughs> it, it did. It worked out. So the front was actually much better. Okay. So it was like, uh, <laughs> I'm sure she's going to love him. Or just as good, equally as good. <laughs> Whatever sounds better as a compliment. Uh-huh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you are the father of two teenage girls. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun having two teenage <laughs> daughters at the same time? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. I tell you what, there's I, I can't think of anything more fun, you know, like a. Like a metal rod being shoved into my no, eardrum. No, okay. Four inch spikes being <laughs> dug into my skull. <laughs> you fending off the uh, the potential suitors yet? Oh yeah, man. We 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 did have a, an interesting experience. You know, we we tried this whole thing where it's like, we, I I don't want anybody. I don't want my girls to to quotey fingers date anybody. Mm-hmm. I would much rather them look for a suitable mate. You know, so it's more like yeah. th- this is kind of like evangelical speak. Maybe um, maybe I sound old fashioned, but. We, we looked more into like courting. What does courting look like? You know, it, you're, I, I don't want some dude, some teenage dude with hormones raging, taking my daughter out just to have fun. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know what fun means. And I don't like the word fun when it refers to my daughter. No. Uh, so our daughters. But uh, so, you know, we, we tried a little bit of the courting phase. And I actually, you know, w- one of the situations, um, it worked out as it was supposed to, as far as the courting was concerned, because they ended up not being compatible. My older daughter. And uh, her boyfriend, I guess you could call him. Uh, and uh, so, but yeah, that, I mean, what, like, what, like, what does that look like courting? Because the rule that I applied to myself and that I have uh, told to my kids is once you determine that 
you're not going to marry that person or you can't see yourself marrying that person, it's time to move on. Because especially if you're a dude, because otherwise you're just going to be spending money on somebody that you're not long-term invested in. So for you guys, what what is courting? Is it similar to that or? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much what it is. I mean, it involved, uh, you know, I I actually, the, the young man, I knew uh, the his mother because I went to high school. Actually, I went to high school with both of his parents. I didn't run with his dad, but I knew his mom from band. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I knew the family. And so the whole courting thing, I guess, the, the, the way that we're trying to do it, because it looks different for every family. I mean, um, it's what we're, what we're trying to do is we're just trying to instill in the girls that, that exact thing that you just said, that principle of if you can't see yourself marrying this person, why try to build an emotional attachment or an emotional yeah. relationship that could potentially lead to a physical relationship mm. that actually is, is, is not point that, that doesn't have a point. Right. Uh, the worst thing is, is to allow yourself because, you know, young ladies are very emotional and, you know, women in general. And I don't mean that as an offense. I mean, I, I think it's a lovely aspect of, it's of a ladies. Fact. It's biology. Yeah. Straight up. And so, I mean, like if a, if a young lady gets emotionally invested into a relationship, and there's no future, then they're just going to end up getting hurt for no reason. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just for my girls. I think that not only should we be teaching young ladies how to approach young men or how to allow the young men to speak to them and act around them, but we should also be teaching our young men how to treat their young uh, other young ladies. Because, gentlemen, if you have a son, your son could be my daughter's boyfriend, uh, potentially. So think about the way that you would want your daughter to be treated. Mm-hmm. Think about the way you would want your your mother to be treated, you know, and, and, and that kind of respect, you know, that, that that's what we're really looking for. So, like you said, just building on whether or not you're going to be compatible with that person. And, um, you know, yeah. and then it also involves knowing the young man, knowing the families and yeah. having a more of a more of a knowledge of who, you know, who they come from, who, who, who's the stock, where yeah. they coming from. <laughs> yeah. And on top of that. Um, while you're dating someone that you've already determined you're not going to spend the rest of your life with, boy, do we sound old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But but once yeah. you've determined that, I mean, you could be missing out on someone else in your life, another opportunity that could be long-term. So, I mean, you know, and when it's time to move on, it's time to move on. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes you look at them and you're like, sweetheart, it's time to move on. It's time to move that. on. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you're absolutely right, man. Okay. So you have a golden retriever named Ginger. Pretty smart dog, right? Yeah, she is. She's a smart dog and she's a sweet dog. She's a, uh, <laughs> my wife best. calls her her. Yeah, they, they really are. I mean, and they're, they're great with kids. Like she's. We've uh, she's almost seven. So we've had her for for, you know, almost seven years. Like we, we got her. I think she was six weeks old or something like that when we finally got her. Um, and uh, she's been great, man. Just fun. Uh, really sweet dog and really great with the kids, too. That's great, man. It sheds that, like crazy. Yeah, that's the thing with golden retrievers, man. Oh, they just yeah. hair everywhere. So, I mean, that that is that is definitely the reason why I don't own a golden retriever. Um, but, uh, anyhow, more power to you. <laughs> yeah, they're great. We, we, we really love her. I mean, like we, sh- I, I tried when she was young, I was trying to teach her how to hunt sheds, which is where, um, you teach her how to go, uh, search for Because when deer every, every year when bucks, um, shed, they lose their antlers. So they like knock them off and there's a certain scent of those and you could train a dog to go find those and then you can sell them or you can make them out, you know, crafts out of them, stuff like that, knife handles and things. Um, but when I started doing that as a young pup, she just wanted to chew on the, it was like a rubber, uh, kind of, uh, Uh she just wanted to chew on it. I never could get her to to do that, but maybe (laughs) it was my, it was probably my fault. She's smart enough to do it. I'm just too lazy to follow through no i got you um so you list radio as a hobby um (laughs) since i've been doing it for years not getting paid for it i got news for you once you do start getting paid for it 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 might as well be a hobby at that point you know (laughs) i'm I'm glad you have this outlet because like i said you, you do a great job with uh with with what you do man so um kudos to you for for sticking with it i appreciate that absolutely now i find this fun how you list as your favorite musical genre hard rock and metal, but you also list meditation music. I mean, could on the spectrum of music, are there two genres uh, further <laughs> apart from each other? 
I, I, I go by extremes, man. Right? I, live, I live by extremes. <laughs> so growing up, my parents would only let us listen to a certain kind of music. Like it was, you know, either church music, which we really weren't into at the time. And it was, uh, <laughs> or like soft rock, you know, Michael Bolton stuff. And, uh, but we had these tapes that they got from Shell gas station called Cruisin' Classics. Nice. And they had like Fleetwood Mac, the Doobie Brothers, Hall & Oates, Steve Miller Band, Allman Brothers Band. And it, it was like, it went through every era. So it was like 50s, 60s, 70s. And uh, cool. so we listened to those. Yeah, it was really cool, man. Like Three Dog Night, CCR, mm-hmm. Love and Spoonful, The Supremes, The Buckinghams, all those old old style like that. So I kind of got turned on to the bubble, uh, the bubblegum rock. And then I was turned on to Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and we like, all went through that uh, stage in our childhood. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. And then uh, and then but before that, it was Metallica. I remember mm-hmm. I first heard Metallica and. um and Justice for All was the first album that I that I really remember hearing. And then the Black album came out. And from by, by the time by the time I heard And Justice for All, I was hooked. So, so then that kind of opened the door for that. Did your parents, considering they, they said, okay, you can listen to church music or light <laughs> rock, right? So when you started listening to Metallica, how did they react to that? Uh, they didn't know. I didn't tell them oh. I was one of those. Yeah, I hid that from them. My, my dad discovered like, you know, we, I, I, I would listen to anthrax and white zombie and Pantera, Megadeth, Sepultura, all those guys that were heavy. And wow. my, my parents never really knew about it. And I also went through a gangster rap phase when you know, <laughs> I, I could never get my pants to not fall all the way down. I got no hips. <laughs> yeah. How do they do that? I got no hips. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome, man. Okay. Right. So, I mean, growing yeah. up, did you have to hide a lot of stuff from your parents? Because you're talking to a kid who was raised Southern Baptist. And oh, okay. while I don't know that I necessarily hid stuff, like like the music I was listening to, I guess, you know what, no. Well, it just feels like uh, maybe there was a Beastie Boys uh, era <laughs> in there where maybe I, I decided to plug the headphones in instead of just listening to it out loud, right? I guess just my childhood... I feel like um, if there was any, and I hate to use this word, I guess repression, it came from the church itself as opposed to my parents, if that makes sense. Okay. You know, no, yeah, no, no dancing, uh, no drinking, obviously, no sex, obviously, uh, you know, just general good rules of thumb. But uh, I mean, the dancing thing, come on, that, that's ridiculous. However, However, as one who cannot dance, it actually, in hindsight, worked out for me. But, I mean, did you find that, that you had those kind of pressures uh, growing up as a kid? Not really. I mean, honestly, the, the music was the biggest thing, um, you know. But my dad, you know, he grew up uh, in the 60s and the 70s. Both my parents did. So they, they went through you know, Beatlemania and Elvis. <laughs> they loved Elvis. My dad sang uh, Love Me Tender to my mom at their wedding. <laughs> and um, so it was like, you know, Elvis was around. He was big. Led Zeppelin, of course. And then Pink Floyd was the one that my dad also introduced me to. And that, <laughs> oh, my goodness, man. Pink Floyd, if, if, if I could listen to one group for the rest of my life, Pink Floyd would, would, would be it. Um, but, yeah, I really didn't have to repress. I, I didn't have to hide a lot of stuff. To be honest okay. with you, I was always kind of scared to. Um, you know, I mean, typically you, you hide stuff that teenage boys hide, you know, magazines or things like that. Right. that you shouldn't have those kind of things. Right. Um, but like we when it came to music, I, I did keep a lot of that secret from my parents. But, you know, they, it was easy for them to find out because I wasn't smart enough to plug headphones in, except for uh, when I got my stoop tape. <laughs> then I had to. But, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think I hid a lot of stuff from them, uh, you know, growing up. My brother, I watched I, I had the benefit of watching my brother go through. Uh, the phase of hiding stuff and sneaking out and doing the things he wasn't ah. supposed to. So I was smart enough to learn from that. Yeah, to a certain absolutely. Extent, which really helped me out because I, I also got a lot more privileges because I'm like, you know, I could be bad, but look at my brother. Uh-huh. No, I'm not that bad. <laughs> nice. So, no. That's actually still the same today. Cause, yeah. No. <laughs> there you go. You're You're the favorite, right? Always, everywhere. Exactly. So the last book you read was Corporate Conspiracies by Richard Belzer. I don't know what this book's about. I will just say that it feels like that the world is just one giant conspiracy that we're just living right now. Um, but what uh, what's that book about? So Corporate Conspiracies, Richard Belzer is the comedian, which I didn't really know he was a comedian, but, you know, he, he's the actor. Um I was on Law and Order. He was also he I did thought some that too. Stuff. Okay, yes, yep. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was pretty cool. So the subtitle of the book is I'm looking it up right now because I, I read it. Uh, it's called the the subtitle is How Wall Street Took Over Washington. 
Mm. Uh, so it, the, the really cool thing about it is that it opens up like th- there's conspiracies like you talk about, like the Illuminati and the lizard people and all of that. Those are those kind of conspiracies. But he kind of goes into the conspiracies about um, things that happen within the corporate world that really screw people over, you know, insider trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does talk a little bit about JFK and things like that. But but mainly it's talking about how corporations uh, like encroach upon our rights and then they do it behind closed doors so nobody else knows about it and they're the ones who benefit from it ultimately so i i kind of liked it because as somebody that that you know trades in conspiracy theories <laughs> finding something like that was pretty interesting to me because it it, uh, it went beyond the the crazy aliens are coming to take us all away or you know uh you know pterodactyls are the ones who tore down you know, slammed in, into 9-11 or uh, slammed into the towers on 9-11 all those things, you know, it, it kind of went beyond that and went to very practical, understandable, applicable and, um, you know, kind of pervasive conspiracy theories that impact everybody on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So that's what I found interesting about it. I, I just uh, does he take a uh, political view one way or the other in that book or or not necessarily? Well, he kind of there's a couple of times where you, you can sense there's a there's a little bit of an attack on um uh, capitalism per se, hmm. but not like the capitalism, like the genuine capitalism that makes up, you know, what that what would make up a free market society. It's more like the capitalism where people are just trying to make as, as much money as they possibly can. They don't care if they destroy the environment. They don't care if they hurt people. They don't care who they kill in, in the process. Mm-hmm. So so that he, he kind of I, I don't like when people lump that capitalism in with with regular uh, capitalism, a desire to to earn money and to improve lives, you know, kind of the Adam Smith concept of that. Right. Uh, but there is some stuff in there he touches on when it comes to global warming. Hmm. You know, so you just kind of you just just take it as it comes sure. and, and read it and okay. do what you think about it. Read it with an open mind. So, so if you and I got on an elevator right now, it's just you and me, and and we're going up fifty floors, right? You got uh, you got about uh, I don't know sixty seconds. What what is your I guess for lack of a better term your elevator pitch on what happened on nine eleven? So this <laughs> silence would be part of that sixty seconds. <laughs> so we get on the elevator. And I don't know, and and I've got uh, I've got a book. Uh, I don't know. It's just um, uh, a nine eleven theme book, and you see you see I'm reading it there, and you go, huh. <laughs> What you got there? And I'm like, oh, I'm just reading about what happened uh, on September 11, 2001. What What do you say? Do you just let me uh, keep riding on and and my bliss, or do yeah, you just live in ignorant bliss, or yeah. do I try to educate you in right. 60 seconds? Yeah, yeah. look like a crackhead. <laughs> <sighs> you know, uh, so I, you don't I believe have to answer that... this. I could totally edit this out. You know. <laughs> well. All right, I'll I'll answer it, but don't let Glenn Beck hear this part. No. Okay, I don't think Glenn <laughs> Beck is listening to this uh, podcast. No, I... <laughs> so nine eleven, I believe that criminal elements within the government orchestrated the events that happened on that day. Okay, and I believe that they were uh, they were implicit to draw us into another uh, war to get us involved in more entanglements overseas uh, to skyrocket profits for larger. Uh, corporations that make weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that the people that died on that day were tragic victims of a false flag event Mm -hmm. that was perpetrated against us by those who were trying to uh, make more money and um, control oil prices and keep people in subjection and in fear. Mm -hmm. And one of those, one of those perfect examples of that is the Patriot Act, which was ramrodded through Congress in October, I believe of 2001, which destroyed the constitution, removed all of our rights, took away our ability to privacy, took away our, uh, our, our right to be secure in our possessions and our freedoms. It was uh, slowly taking away our rights to own and bear arms. And then it was revamped uh, later on in the Obama administration with the NDAA, the national defense authorization act. Bing. So I think it was, it, this it is was my a floor. Beginning. Sorry. This is my floor. I got to get off the elevator. No, I'm sorry. Continue. This no, is no, be- wait, wait. Call me, please. <laughs> this is the beginning. Breakingradio.com. Listen to my show. What were you saying? Yeah, yeah I, I, I honestly, I do think, unfortunately, I do think that people within our government had knowledge of that. Hmm. And, uh, and it, it was orchestrated where we had, uh, they were doing uh, flight tests on that day or drills on that day to keep all of the, the airplanes in the sky. Um, and I think that they ended up, I don't think that a plane hit, uh, the Pentagon, and I'm not. I'm still not sure what happened out there in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, but I, I do believe, unfortunately, that it was 
a, a, an inside job, a false flag event, which to be honest with you, Keith, that terminology has become so commonplace now. You know, like 15 years ago, the only people you heard talking about that was Alex Jones, you know, or if you found a Bill Cooper book at a garage sale somewhere. And now people are talking about it like, hey, there's a false flag event. There's the deep state. There's the Illuminati. There's all this criminal elements within the government. All of these things are now common vernacular. It seems like, especially in conservative circles, hmm. I, I could be wrong, but it just seems like it's more popular. OK, let, let me let me ask you a question. But first, let me preface it by saying in this world that we live in, I think that you have to go back and question everything connected to what our government has told us, whether it's um, whether it's something as massive as September 11th, 2001, or whether it's um, why the price of lunches at a high school you see what I'm saying? like any any level of government, you need to go and question what the official line is. That's my yes. point in that respect. I, I think I think it's 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 due diligence at this point in our nation's history with all that has been happening to us. And I say to us, I, I think it's absolutely due diligence to go back and reexamine everything large and small. Now, of course, you could drive yourself nuts doing that. But I do <laughs> yeah. think that, that there is an element of that uh, at everything, everything that needs to be questioned. But here's my question as it specifically relates to 9-11. And I don't want to, you know, spend too much time here, but I do have a question about the Pentagon because I hear a lot of people make that that claim that I don't believe a a plane necessarily hit the Pentagon. So then my follow up is, then where's the plane? And because I've never heard, uh, it seems like such a simple question. Yet I've personally, and I haven't spent a lot of time, I'll admit, I haven't personally gotten a, a satisfactory answer on that. Do you have one for that? Uh, you know, as far as where is the plane? Where's the plane? The people that, that were actually on that flight that the general consensus is flew into the Pentagon. Where are the people that were on that flight? If, a, In other words, if a missile hit the Pentagon, is that what your claim is? Yeah, he, he, there, there was, yeah, I, I believe it was some type of projectile okay. like okay. that or a smaller plane. Okay. I'll say that. A small, okay, fine. Then yeah. where where are the passengers that were supposedly on the plane that hit the Pentagon? See, the, I, I've wondered about that myself, um, and it, it, you'll have to forgive me because it, it's been a bit since I've, I've sure. researched the nitty gritty of this. But um, I, I believe that there's either fabricated flights or uh, fabricated planes or that, you know, something was just created like a flight manifest was created and that that record was documented or doctored, uh, I'd rather. So I, that, that would be my question to that. And it's the same thing with my question, you know, uh, to uh, the. Uh, what happened in, I think it was Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where that, where the plane went down. But I think it was the same thing. It was, it was either a doctored or uh, made up flight uh, record. Okay. Well, or uh, a okay. chart or whatnot or, or something like that. Okay. But I mean, there, there, there are stories of loved ones who were talking to people on the right. flight and, and I want to know where those people are, you know, and, and also Todd Beamer, for example, who, yeah. who uh, tried to get into the cockpit uh, on the Shanksville flight. This is where 9-11 conspiracy theories lose me because these were real people communicating from these real planes, in my opinion. And until I get a satisfactory answer, um, and, and this, you know, this doesn't necessarily take away from a larger conspiracy, but it right. just, to, to say that a plane didn't hit the Pentagon, and yet no one can tell me where that plane is or where those passengers are. Yeah. That's where I get lost. But I, I, we don't need to spend more time. I'll give you the, for lack of a better term, I'll give you the last word on this. But um, that, <laughs> yeah. that's just where I'm always lost on these 9-11 um, conspiracy theories. And you're talking to somebody who does not trust the government for a nanosecond. So I could easily <laughs> yeah. be swayed on something like this. Yeah, the, the, those those are all great. What I love about this, though, is that there's actually the willingness to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So the established baseline is we have to question what the government's telling us. We have to question yeah, what the official absolutely is. common ground, yeah, easy to easy <laughs> exactly. to find here. Yes. Yeah. So then, I mean, and then you could start. Uh, th then you could start looking at things because another aspect of this is this: what if the the government knew that this was going to happen, similar to something that people talk about with Pearl Harbor. 
What happens if they knew that the hijackers were going to try to do this? But what they did is they assisted the hijackers in making sure that they had an easy passageway, no problems at the airport, easily able to get uh, control of those planes. And real people did really die. Yeah. So yeah. maybe it was simply we hey, we know this is going to happen. We're not going to do anything about it. As a matter of fact, we're going to facilitate it and help it happen. You know, back in 1993, when the World Trade Center was bombed for the first time, the guy who set the bomb there, there are tapes. The FBI set that guy up to do that. Uh, they 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 coaxed him. They gave him the bomb. They told him where to go. They told him how to do it. He knew that they were trying to bust him and he recorded them. And that those tapes are, are well, uh, well documented online. You know, so there there are things that where the government could be uh, working alongside of or assisting people that want to do something stupid like that. And then there's just your fabricated false flag events. But mm-hmm. I, I would say this just in my last words, since you're letting me do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to World Trade Center seven? Investigate yeah. what happened yeah. to World Trade Center seven. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that Alex Stein brought up on uh, an episode of this podcast just a few months ago. You could sell me on. Don't trust the government as it relates to 9-11. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not as necessarily swayed and can't see myself getting there. But who knows uh, as far as a, a missile or, or something else hitting the Pentagon. Um, and don't get me started on the FBI as far as anything. <laughs> the CIA, Seriously. The NSA, so I, 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 honestly, you're absolutely right. I think there is absolute common ground there on like what has the government done to earn our trust? They've done just the opposite. And, and now now we're getting into a realm that is the opposite of what I had hoped this podcast would be when I started <laughs> That's trying to get away from <laughs> politics. I, I, I yeah, set I up understand. this podcast to specifically have conversations <laughs> about life and, and, you know, instead of like heavy stuff, just um, just just have conversations with people about their life yeah. story. And here I am uh, dragging you into a 9-11. And I apologize because you did not see that come. That, that, that was not anywhere in these. Uh, I think we got there on the uh, the book uh, from Richard Belzer, the uh, uh, yeah. corporate conspiracy. So uh, that sounds like no an interesting book to, to, to check out. Now, your favorite book that you've read, obviously, I know you want to say the Bible, um, but uh, <laughs> Awaken the Giant Within, Tony Robbins. Uh, good stuff, huh? Oh, my goodness. I, uh, you know, you, you say that about the reason you started that podcast. I have over the past, oh, man, I've been doing, I've been in radio, terrestrial or otherwise, since 2011. And when I say that, I don't mean I'm not like one of the guys who got hired and then moved around to other radio stations around the world. I was on a pay-as-you-go radio station back in 2011, mm-hmm. WCVG in Covington, Cincinnati. Right. And Well, it was Covington and Cincinnati. It was over here in Covington, Kentucky. But uh, I, I started there. And when I first started, I was all about the conspiracy theories. I was all about the politics. I had woken up in 2006, awake, not woke in 2006 on christmas eve and then i was just just flat out the, the entire way and so for uh, the better part of 11 years i've been doing radio that has been talking about politics it's been talking about religion and i've been trying to find the perfect way to merge those two mm-hmm. to where hey there's all this stuff that's going on in the world and here's the gospel here's the answer to that so how do we make that a cohesive show and then i'm to the point now keith where But you just said that about the reason you started doing this podcast was to get away from that stuff and just talk about life. Mm -hmm. That's where I am right now. I'm like in this place of, okay, I know there's a new world order. I know that there's, you know, uh, government cover ups. I know that there's conspiracies. I know things are going on in the world and it's destroying us all this horrible stuff. But then what do we do to fix it? Is it vote harder? Is it vote more? Is it, you know, what is it? What's the answer? And so I, I've, I've landed on this thing where it's people. People are the answer. And if I'm going to influence somebody, I'm not going to influence it by standing on a soapbox screaming about the new world order. I'm going to I'm going to do it by having kind of these kind of conversations with you, like talking about life. Where do you come from? What's common ground? What makes you tick? What do you think about? What are your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations? What's the purpose? What gets you up every day? What's your passion? What drives you? Find those common ground and then find a way to to help us as human beings raise our level of consciousness with one another and try to make a better world. That sounds cliche, but honestly, I think people are so tired of getting up in the morning and turning on the radio. At least I know I am. Yeah. And yeah. hearing the same exact thing, but from a different mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And my show comes on. To, I have two shows. I have one show that comes on on Sundays, and it's it's more about politics, current affairs, social events. And then my paranormal show that comes on Friday nights. 
But the the show on Sundays, I'm really looking at what can I do to be effective to help humanity? How can I be of service to humanity? And that's one of the things I drew the most uh, most from with Tony Robbins, because that book, it was one of those things where, you know, you've got potential, you've got passions, you've got desires. Now, how do you stir those up to move from point A to point B? How do you get yourself to a uh, to a place where you can you can attach your uh, pain to the things you don't want and pleasure to the things you do and get yourself at a, at a, a level of service to humanity. So that, that, that's what I got from that book. And it's one of the first books I ever read that I actually grabbed a pen and piece of paper and started writing things out, started like following this, the assignments in the book. Nice. Um, yeah. And, and that was probably, I, I would say I got that like back in 2003, I think. Um, but yeah. And I followed Tony Robbins through the years. Uh, I still do. I still listen to him. And uh, but but from that book, that, that's what I drew from that. And it's kind of been in the back of my mind for all of these years. How do we take ourselves from the from one plane of, of consciousness to another? How do we elevate our frequency of thought and make ourselves uh, a, a, a cultural change agent? Mm hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I got all that from that one question. I apologize. If no, I no, that's perfect. I, I will say that, um, and you mentioned it in your answer there, um, the government, uh, the world, it's so exhausting. And, and, and they, they do their best to wear us out. And also, they, they do their best to, to stick their tentacles into so many areas that it's it's almost impossible to completely disconnect to just like, right. I want to watch a, a sporting event. Okay. Well get ready to, to have uh, athletes tell you how to live your life and how to think. I mean, you see like, it's just everywhere entertainment um, right. and, and just places where you, you, you in theory should have refuge from that kind of stuff, but no. Um, okay. So uh, I like this. You, you can play the drums. Right, that's that's pretty awesome, yep. dude. I've always wanted to be able to play the drums, um, but I love this. You can touch your nose with your tongue. Uh, you, sir, are a show off. Hmm. I wish I could do that. I just I cannot. Well, yeah, no. I, as you see right now, Aaron can see me on camera. Uh, the rest of you are spared this. Um, it's kind of fun. I like how you. It's not I even like cool. how you like tilted your head back like, like you were going to Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tilting my head back. No, everything everything moves in unison when you do that, Keith. You're not helping the cause at all. Um, I mean, does that got a practical purpose there to be able to touch your your nose there? Is that uh, No, I have never gotten a job interview or yeah. gotten a job because of that like, hey, show me something stupid you could do. See, that like, was a, yeah, that was a subtle way of me bringing you down to my level. See, like, aha, see, he doesn't even help you. No, um, let's see. Um, well, nice segue, actually. Biggest turning point in your life where you said, you know, you've decided you're no longer going to let others determine your value. You're going to tell others your worth. That's that's an awesome. You need to get that uh, on a plaque or something. Seriously, I, I'm not I'm not being flippant with that. Well, I, I appreciate that, man. It's 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 all about I guess I'm at an age where I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of looking back on my life and thinking where are all the missed opportunities? Cause I don't want to dwell on the past. I don't want to think on the past. And a lot of the, a lot of those opportunities that I could have taken that I didn't take, you know, they, they haunt you at night when you're sleeping, especially when you get older. So young people, listen to me, do follow your passions. Don't let your dreams go away. No, but I, I, I think about that. Like I, uh, other people are always telling you, um, I'm, I'm going to give you this as uh, as payment for your job, or I'm going to give you this in exchange for your labor or this in exchange for your work. Hmm. And so many times we settle for less than what we're actually worth because we're looking for either validation or we're looking for money or we're looking for something to just get us, just get us by for some period of time. And, you know, when employers tell you, well, you have to do this, you have to work these extra hours, you have to, you know, go above and beyond. You have to do all of these things, which in essence, I don't have a problem doing, but then you're devalued uh, by them because they're still not uh, providing you with what you need or what you're, what you're actually worth. Hmm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. No, uh, I got you. you. Yeah. So, you, I mean, I, I made up that saying because I realized, you know, I've I got a family to take care of. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm looking into going into public speaking and I keep telling myself, nobody wants to pay to hear me speak. Hmm. 
And then I'm like, well, you tell the person the cost. This is what my experience, this is what my wisdom, this is what my lack of wisdom, this is what my life <laughs> experience in totality can give you for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what it's worth and to the, you. And this is how you're going to grow. There you go. And the phrase again is I am no longer going to let others determine my value but I will tell others my worth. I love it. Um, I also love this story. You you met Steve Gadd, a legendary drummer, uh, at a truck stop. Um, now, I I love music, right? But I couldn't tell you, you know, hey, Steve Gadd played for, uh, I mean, I, I was surprised. Because when I looked this up, I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy is a legendary drummer. Why don't you enlighten <laughs> us is. on all of the projects he's been involved with, man? And I feel like an idiot for not knowing his name. Oh, man. Uh, If you've ever heard um, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon. Right. He's the drummer who made up that, who who wrote that track to that song. Uh, He played for Steely Dan. He was a legendary studio drummer back in the um, uh, back in the 70s. I mean, he's played. I mean, the list of his uh, of his. his, his discography mm-hmm. discography is that the way it is <laughs> yeah discography um, yeah <laughs> there you go mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if i've ever said that out loud right that's uh, a good point no that's a good point that's one of those things that like you look for on the internet but you never have to say out loud i'm glad you mentioned the 50 ways to leave your lover by paul simon all the stuff he did with steely dan i looked up i saw he's um uh done stuff with the bgs i mean he has yeah paul mccartney he played paul with McCartney? them before yeah. I played with him that yeah. is, that's, I mean, that's cool. So you met him at a truck stop. Yeah, man. I was coming home one night. This was back in 2005, I believe. Um, yeah, it was just 2005. I pulled up to an exit uh, in Walton, Kentucky. And uh, I was turning left and it was an overpass over 75, the Interstate 75 that goes underneath it. And going uh, in front of driving in front of me, Coming from uh, the the highway and going into a truck stop right across the way was a big, huge tour bus. And my wife and I were like, oh, that's cool. And I I noticed on the side it said Zildjian, which is a drum, uh, which is a cymbal manufacturer. And then it had a picture of Steve Gadd's face. (laughs) And I was like, no way. (laughs) So we I I, I turned I was in the left hand turning lane and I I, I drove across like like two or two or three lanes of uh, turning traffic to get over there. And he went to a Flying J's truck stop. So I went and pulled into a pump and I acted like I was pumping gas and I was like creeping over the, the, the <laughs> roof of my chair, like looking, trying to see. And I see these people just getting off the bus. And then all of a sudden, Steve Gadges, boom, boom, nice. just bounced off this bus. And I was like, no way, no way, Steve Gadd. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm totally geeking out. So here I am. I, I, I went into the truck stop. I uh, went into the to convenience store area <laughs> and I found the guy. And I, I saw he was in the bathroom at the time. I didn't talk to him in the bathroom. Right, I talked okay. to a couple of his guys. I'm like looking under the stalls. I, I think that's his feet. You know, but uh, I ran into a couple of guys that I that that were with him, and they were like, "Yeah, he's he's here. We're doing a clinic down in Louisville. We're doing another one up in Cincinnati." I was like, "Oh, that's cool." So um, he snuck out, and I kind of I followed him uh, outside, and I just talked to him for a few minutes. I was like, "Dude, this is an honor." totally great he was super cool he's from new york and uh, he was super cool about everything just uh i was like oh man I, I was trying to get some free tickets to the clinic i was like oh that'd be great to go to the clinic he was like yeah you can go to this website get the tickets or whatever and i was like oh okay so Aww. he he left and uh <laughs> they started to go well i was just a few miles away from my house so i drove back home to my house i got my modern drummer magazine that had him as the cover story on it i drove back up to the bus stop and I almost ran after him as they were walking up the road to this. Uh, they had taken the the bus to a, a bus wash next to it. I, I followed him up the side of this road. And I was like, Mr. Gad, w- would you sign this for me, please? I was like, I went home and got my Modern Drummer magazine. Would you sign this for me? And he looks at it and he goes, no. Sh-. And I was like, yeah. So he just signs it. And I'm like, that's so freaking awesome, man. Thank you. And then he just walks away. That I still got that crazy. magazine right down here in the drawer of my desk. It's a prized possession. It's awesome. Awesome, man. That is a great story. I'm surprised you had time to run home and back. That is awesome. I'm so glad that I was worked out. I was hoping. I was hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Okay. This is this is not good. This is not good, Aaron. In third grade, man, you had a a, a major crush and then uh (laughs) something 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 happened. (laughs) Oh man, I tell you what, I remember it like it was yesterday. So when we had, <laughs> oh no, this is for this ranks up there is one of the most embarrassing stories ever. I bet, dude. 
So we had this this policy in our in our class where if you had pulled a book off the bookshelf, you were not allowed to go to the restroom or do anything until you put the book back on the bookshelf. Well, I was I was reading this book. I can't even remember what book it was. And I started getting the bubble guts and I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> so, I never, I've never heard that. I'm a 46-year-old man. I've never heard that term. I love it. <laughs> Bubble guts. <laughs> oh, okay. man. So I, I went over to uh, to the bookshelf to put this book back on the shelf. Everything was working against me on this, Keith. Everything mm-hmm. was working. And there stood the girl I had a huge crush on. And I'm like, I got to put this book back. I got to get back to the bathroom. Well, <laughs> me being you know, a little rule follower back then, I was like, the book came from the bottom shelf. So I bent down to put this book oh, on the bottom no. shelf. Oh, bubble guts. And, oh, my gosh. I ripped the, the oh, book. I don't know why, but I passed gas. And the, the young lady was standing there. Her eyes got huge as, as half dollars. Her hair mm-hmm. was, was like horizontal, blown back from her face. Her okay, skin right. was peeled from her skull. <laughs> okay. And it was just... But I, I ripped this horatious oh, fart, no. right? And then I turned around and looked at her, and she's staring at me. And I'm like, my life's over. And then I just ran to the bathroom. Sure. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, that's traumatic stuff when you're a kid with a crush, you know? Um, oh, yeah, man. Well, I mean, look, it, it worked out for you, though, at least. You know, maybe maybe it played a, a part in, in keeping y'all apart. How about that? <laughs> yeah. See, it's a good way to... It kept a lot of things apart, so... <laughs> Your butt cheeks. No. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> uh, all right, man. Uh, so, um, you list as your uh, favorite app, Odyssey Radio, Crossroads Church app. That's where they can find you, right? If people want to check out your stuff. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so the Odyssey Radio app gets you the Odyssey Radio show, which uh, comes on on Friday nights at 6 p.m. Uh, on odysseyradio.com, O-D-Y-S-Y radio. So, if you go to your app store and download mm-hmm. the app, it's it's really it's really cool because if uh, if any a streaming service decides that we need to be canceled, you can still get Odyssey Radio on that app, That's good. and uh, you can get podcasts to the shows and all that stuff. Okay, uh, it's, uh, okay. it's 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 fun, you know, it's great. But those other two apps as well, Coast to Coast uh, AM, I'm a, I, I love that app, and then Crossroads Church app is just uh, it's a local church here, and the app is like. I don't know how much they spent making this app, but it has got everything in it. Bible studies, journaling. It's got um, uh, it's got a whole system in there for prayer and uh, praying for other people, submitting prayers to be prayed for by the community. It's like 35, 40,000 member church. Hmm. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah. I should tell people to find you also on uh, breakdradio.com as well, correct? That's correct. Breakdradio.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, at breakdradio on the socials. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, what, all the socials there. What is it with you and TikTok, though? You say that's where you have the most response? Yeah, it's, it's weird, man. So back in, I would say back in December, uh, maybe earlier, maybe like uh, October, November last year, I started doing these like little minute and a half long, uh, I guess, like updates, like daily updates, but I call them the daily breakdown. So they're about 90 seconds to, to two minutes long. Uh, they're played over on Mojo and uh, uh, on the Daily Mojo with Brad Staggs. Uh, uh, he plays them every day at 9.15 uh, a.m. Eastern time. Yeah. But anyway, I started back on TikTok just doing like just these 90 second videos. And honestly, I've never I have not in all the years I've been doing this uh, and all the social media platforms that I've tried. I've never seen a response to the stuff that I've put out there like this. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, so, I mean, it, it's really awesome. So I'm very excited about that. So over there, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm almost at a thousand followers, mm-hmm. which means I can go live at that point. Um, but really, uh, yeah, it, it just seems like people over there on TikTok are just more responsive to those short clips and, um, you know, seem to like what's going on over there. So I'm, I'm happy about that. That is really awesome, man. Okay. So, um, breakdradio.com, um, at breakdradio on the socials, um, all over the place. I mean, uh, just uh, I know you from from uh, Mojo50Radio.com. Uh, you're yeah. ubiquitous, I think, is the bottom line here. And um, trying to be, yeah, yeah, and Odyssey Radio, of course, as well. So, man, Aaron Barker, I appreciate you making time today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you, sir. Yeah, same thing, Keith. Keep up the great work over there, man. And uh, you know, just a huge shout out to to Mojo50 because uh, uh, you know those guys took a chance on me last year. I really appreciate it, Ron, over there, the producer, and uh, Brad. 
been hugely supportive. All the guys uh, and hosts behind the scenes as well have been have been great. So I'm I'm really really pleased to have found a community like that that is committed to free speech and letting people share their ideas. And then of course with this man, really do uh, I really like your show. I really like what you do, and I'm I'm grateful that you've taking the opportunity to let me come on here and share a little bit about myself. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. Aaron Barker, I appreciate you, man. Absolutely. Thank you, man. It was such a pleasure getting to know Aaron and his path to where he is today. He is one of the stalwarts over at Mojo Five O Radio, our friends over there. If you could please take a moment um, while you're thinking about it to subscribe to this podcast over at youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith, I would be so grateful. Uh, the show is also available when you head to at the mic If you're able to rate, uh, give us five stars, please, over at iTunes or Spotify. Again, so grateful uh, that you help get this show noticed by more people. Please tell your friends and family about it as well. Now, if you go way back to episode number seven of At The Mic, I sat down with Rob Borowski, a co-worker of mine at The Blaze. Uh, his wife, Nikki Whaley, is going to be my guest next time we meet up here on At The Mic. And so we're going to hear her life story and maybe get some dirt on Rob. Who knows? That might be fun. Uh, <laughs> so we'll have that conversation here next time on At The Mic. But in the meantime, I'm sure you get tired of hearing me say it, but it's important and I mean it. Please go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to at the mic for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. <laughs>